0: Welcome back, everybody. As we close out the week together, thanks for being with us. Uh, Grateful to have you with us. I I think really an interesting passage today, a couple of passages. We'll see how far we get. But we're at the end of chapter 33, the book of Exodus. Um, We we spoke yesterday. If you didn't get a chance, I think yesterday's texts are are also very interesting, a, a really affirmative moment. For Moses, some interesting language, but kind of a, a, a reprieve, a reset, I think was the word you used, Michael. And I think you know, yesterday's passages were interesting. Today we get uh, I, I, again, I, I don't know of a really a, a parallel story of this anywhere else. Uh, let me read it. I'm, you probably have heard it before, but whether or not you have listened, and we'll go through it in a minute. The Lord said to Moses, "I will do the very thing that you've asked for you." For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a rock by me where you shall stand in that place. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, an extension of yesterday's conversation, Moses says, "Lord, I want I want to know you. I want to be in your presence." Today we have this explicit request: "Show me your glory." And uh, the word "glory" here in Hebrew is is very close to a word like "essence." Show me your truth. Show me who you are. Uh, um, don't think of glory as a thing that God carries. It, it's a thing that God is. It, it is something of the reality of God. And God says, I, I will do that, and I'll say my name before you, the Lord. And remember that the first time Moses heard this was back at the burning bush. Remember that when you see Lord in all capital letters, it is the sacred name, Yahweh. It, it is that word. And that title was used, and um, we can talk about why we translate it, Lord, another time. But when you see the all caps, that is the divine name as it is in this case. So God says, I, I'll put you there. I will, I will pass by you. My goodness will pass by you, and I will proclaim my name in front of you. But you can't see my face for no one who sees me face to face will live. Now, this sounds like a contradiction to yesterday's passage when we were told literally he would speak to Moses face to face. And if that's troubling for you, remember that we're talking about the personification of God. We're giving God attributes that we understand, but those are not to be understood as actually what God is and who God is. This is the best language we have as we grasp for what it would mean that Moses would be In God's presence, and so don't read a word like "face" here literally, because that's not what this passage is is saying. Nevertheless, Moses gets to be in the direct presence of God in this place, and um, I'll finish a little bit more. I think there's an interesting wrinkle in this text, but but Michael, this is. you know, I don't. I don't know what this story is in the context of the greater narrative, but certainly it's an important story in the context of Moses's own own narrative.
1: Well, I think that's where I was going to point our attention here. And just in case uh, you wanted to be with us here in the text, uh, with our iPad not working today, we're Exodus thirty-three, um, all the way here after verse seventeen. And I think it's worth noting that. Moses's story is intricately and intimately wound up with the people of Israel's story. And I think that we sometimes might read the text like Exodus and almost think that Moses has an adversarial relationship with the people. We certainly see the complaining, his struggles for leadership at certain times, uh, his own struggle to accept that God calls him into this kind of leadership position. But if you're willing to slow down and to uh, look at the text now as a whole, we've gone through, you know, 33 chapters of it together now. I think we've, we've seen this arc in which Moses is both the one who's drawn out of the water and the one who God uses to bring the people through the water. And he is the one that God continues to return to in the relationship. And this language about um, the Lord being gracious to whom the Lord Chooses to be gracious. This idea um, about you know speaking with God face to face in the previous text, and then now uh, this idea that he's going to be so much in the presence of God that he might actually not be able to stand up and live. So God's going to make accommodation for him. I I think all of this points us, Clint, towards that deeper reality that Moses has been chosen by God. God is sovereign. God is God. Moses is. Uh, the leader, he's important. He has, a, a, of course, a privileged role um, as he seeks to lead the people well. That said, this is God's choice and God's relationship with Moses. God is the one who is ultimately uh, the, the guider, the protector, the shepherd of the people of Israel. And a text like this both communicates Moses's closeness to God. But interestingly, God's Closeness to the people. God, God has chosen the, this wayward group with all of their complaining and all their struggling. God continues to draw near and he continues to uh, make this promise that he's going to lead and guide Moses. And I, I think it would be easy to read this as if this is only a personal moment with Moses. It is that, but I think it's more than that. It's a reminder that God is going to continue to show goodness to these people. He's going to be gracious to these people. He's going to be gracious even to Moses with his misgivings. And, and that's the kind of movement we've seen throughout the whole text.
0: Yeah, th- I think there's a lot going on in this passage, actually, Michael. You know, this is Moses' request. God says yes. Then God says these words uh, indicating that God doesn't really have to do anything. This is a gift to Moses. He's being gracious to Moses. But even in the midst of that, he's protecting Moses. You know this idea that um, we we saw inklings of this uh, just a chapter ago, where God says, "If I'm around the people, I, harm could come to them." And, and the same is true here. That Moses, if if I gave you what you're asking, you couldn't you couldn't take it. You couldn't tolerate it. It would strike you down. But to stand in the un. Unchecked presence of God would be deadly for Moses. And so that there is this compromise, this place in the rock. My glory passes by. I'll cover you with my hand. And again, don't, don't think of these things as literal. We're not talking about a, a giant hand here. This is just, this is the language we have to try and paint a picture of what's happening. And after I've passed by, I will remove my hand and you shall see my back. And I, I, I want to be clear that, you know, in the story, this is about Moses, Michael, but I think this has always been a really interesting text to me devotionally. Because if you've tried to be Christian for long, you have probably had a moment like Moses where you've just said, Lord, I, I just need something. I need to see something of you. I need to know something of you. I'm trying to do the right thing. Life is frustrating. Life is difficult. I just need to know you're with me and on this path leading me, guiding me, that, that you're here. And it, it's a very, I think, natural kind of request. And the thing that is, I, I, as I read this and as I think of this through a preaching lens Moses doesn't get to see where God is going. Moses gets to see where God has been. We, we The best that we can hope for is to sort of see the backside of God, to know that we're in the right steps, to know that we're following. Um, our position is not one in which we can encounter God in the fullness of who God is, and yet we have these moments where God shows us these glimpses of himself to encourage us and keep us on the track. And I, this is a fun passage to study. It's a fun passage to think of devotionally, to preach. It's just a, I, I think if you allow yourself to kind of leave the text and begin spinning about what else it might mean, there's some really good stuff here.
1: Well, the image of rock in the midst of the the poles, the bookends. You know, we had the stone tablets, the covenant, the Ten Commandments made, and then Moses breaks them. And then uh, in just a moment, um, next week, we're going to see the commandments written again. Um, and this is very much a buildup to that. I think it's meaningful that uh, while those are written on stone, now Moses is protected by the rock. He's protected from the presence of God. And there is a kind of Old Testament emphasis here, which I, I certainly think for Christians is a little foreign, this idea that in the face of God there is danger. The the historic Christian interpretation, when you look at Jesus, who calls the children to him, this very anti cultural kind of openness. Jesus calls to him the weak, the powerless, the sick, uh, the outcast. These are the ones who Jesus invites in, and it's striking that here we see the, the sheer power of God, that goodness and graciousness is still life-threatening here. And Clint, I think it's C.S. Lewis who writes uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right, that um, God is, what, what is it, that Aslan is Good, but he's not safe, or Mm -hmm. or he's great, but not safe. And I I think that's the kind of sentiment here: that God is good, God is gracious, but yet it's not safe to be in God's presence because God, not because God's wrathful or bent on uh, destruction, but because imperfection in the presence of perfection, um, the foundations rattle.
0: Yeah, and you know the word we would use there, Michael. I think is awe. And we tend, it's interesting, if you look at the root awe, it includes the idea of fear. And we tend to go one way with the word awe. In America, we tend to go awesome, right? but it's the same root that leads to awful, to to fear full of awe. And, And I think when the Old Testament talks about awe, it really brings together both of those elements, the idea of being stunned by the awesomeness of God but also the the otherness to be humbled to be uh, um startled even to be afraid in the in the sense of reverence of the holiness of God and and I think we be, we begin to see that maybe even if if we can finish here um I'll try to read this quickly but I think it gets us there this next part of the story so starting with the first verse of chapter 34 Then the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. No one shall come up with you. There's some instructions given here. Uh, Jumping to verse 4, Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the former ones. He rose early in the morning. He went to Sinai as the Lord had commanded. He took in his hand the tablets. The Lord descended in a cloud. And stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty but visiting the iniquity of parents upon their children and children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So this is... Um kind of a reestablishment of the covenant, of the promise. There's new tablets, there's a new litany, a new liturgy, there's a proclamation of both forgiveness and accountability, and then there's the response of Moses, and I, I think this is a beautiful response, Michael. If I have found favor in your eyes, be with us. And And here as we exit this story, we're reminded that Moses always sees his role as one of advocacy on behalf of the the whole people. If I have found favor, be with us. And we are a stiff-necked people, but pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Uh, really, I, I think a really profound place where we end up with Moses in, in this text.
1: One of the things that's so striking about it, Clint, is the recognition that is so clear here that Moses isn't arguing that the people are going to do better. He doesn't show up to God and say, I promise we'll get it right this time. No, in fact, he uses the very language that God used to describe the people, to say that they are a stiff-necked people. It's to say, yeah, they we are even in describing ourselves going to find it difficult to worship God. That's true. But take us as an inheritance, you know, take the people not on the merit of their choices or actions, but take them as a a matter of their, of your own choice of your own free will. And, you know, that is, I think maybe the, the heart of prayer is reflected Really, not much better in any other part of this book because in this engagement with God, Moses both pleads his case as God, let this be the case, and also defers to God. You know, God, ultimately, we need you. This isn't a bargaining session. This isn't Moses squaring up with God. There's no manipulation here. This is Moses saying, you know, in the midst of this holy moment, Moses, by the way, worshiping, while admitting the people are stiff-necked. I mean, that's its own kind of nuance and interesting uh, s- sort of tension there. But I, I just think a text like this reminds us that it all hinges on God. It, it, it has from the beginning. The people uh, relied upon God for their deliverance, and they will rely upon God on the other side of their idolatry. And Moses is honest about that, and the writer of Exodus makes it clear that God is proceeding in this relationship, not because of some kind of negotiated hope, but because God has made the choice, and that that's what's necessary.
0: Yeah, I think this text clearly anticipates there will be further ups and downs for the people. Uh, Moses will be in the middle of that. There'll be some ups and downs with Moses himself on both sides uh, in the relationship with God as well as his leadership of the people. Um, just to note, Michael, this language, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This becomes an important refrain. You can find this in other parts of the Old Testament. It becomes a, a kind of descriptive way to talk about God. I think maybe the most notable uh, occurrence of it is th- these are the words that Jonah uses complaining about God when he's sent to Nineveh. He he says, I knew you would do this. I knew you would try to forgive the Ninevites because you are a God who's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. So um, this is more than, well, these are God's own words. In this case, they get put in Jonah's mouth later, but it's more than just words about God. This is central to the character of God. This is a description of who God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, yet by no means clearing the guilty and visiting the iniquity upon generations. So this is the tension of the Old Testament, the the goodness of God and the holiness of God, the graciousness of God and the wrath and punishment of God. These these are the major themes Mm -hmm. that we see worked out. In the nation of Israel and in the relationship, the covenant relationship with God, and I, I think um, it's fun to read the first part of this. You know, my Bible it actually lands where the good part is on one page column, and the the rough part is on the next column. It's fun to have the first part. We love slow and slow to anger, and steadfast and faithful, and forgiving our sins we like to kind of minimize or forget that second part, but it is there, and it is a a very important and prevalent theme anytime we talk about God.
1: Well, the yet is the essential connecting word there, Clint, the yet by no means. And that is the tension, as you say it. And I, I think it's worth noting and slowing down that the Old Testament does present a thoroughgoing picture that humans have a part of the covenant to show up. There's expectation, and God is disappointed throughout the Old Testament when that expectation's not met. Now, I think you see the tension even in a text like this, Clint, this language of of merciful, gracious. These words assume that there's something to be gracious over, that mercy is required, right? So I think it's built into the text, but that said, uh, God does have this this response that it it's judgment when the people have been given God's way and and God, who is right and just and has kept his part of the agreement is by character responds. And I think that we struggle with that from our vantage who have, heard and and really been marked by and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that God would be willing to take the very judgment for the people's lack of faithfulness upon God's self. I mean, that's that's an astonishing theological claim that transforms the way that we read the Bible. But when you are studying the Old Testament, you have to, for a moment, step into the shoes of those before Jesus Christ, and see how this text shaped their imaginations. And then I do think that helps us both understand and appreciate what we discover in the New Testament, where they struggle so mightily, Clint, to understand who Jesus is and what he's proclaiming and what he claims to be doing.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the the difficulty there, Michael, is that the Old Testament unabashedly and unashamedly says God is both of those. God is gracious, and right. God does hold accountable. God does forgive debts, and God remembers iniquity. That, that that those aren't things that God does; those are aspects of who God is, and we see them on display throughout different parts of the Old Testament. There are times we clearly see grace; there are times we clearly see punishment, and it it matters. I think Michael and I know we're running a little long here. I'll I'll be quick, but it matters that that comes to us in a text where Moses has wanted to see all of God but is only able to see part of God because i th- i think that's that's the best we ever get right none of us are capable none of us are able to understand who God is so we understand these natures of God and we and we try to recognize our glimpses of them and understand what they mean and we see them most fully in the new testament for for christians this becomes the primary way we understand who God is, is what we see and who we see Jesus Christ to be. So, um, yeah, the, the, a lot of good stuff here. I think you could dig into this text quite a bit and there would, there would still be a lot to uncover.
1: Just very, very, very briefly, I want to. Make sure it's clear that I don't think that this is just esoteric study the Bible things. I I think this is very practical. I've had recent conversations with folks going through some very difficult times, asking the question, why? Why is God letting this happen? Where is God in the midst of this real difficult, troubled situation? And I think it's worth remembering texts like this one where God is at work, and yet God is doing so through sometimes difficult and Always mysterious means, and I I hope that there can be some comfort, maybe uh, maybe a reminder in the midst of difficult circumstances that that God is still working, God's still revealing, God is being good and gracious, though that's not always packaged in a way that makes sense or in a way that from this side of eternity that we can see how it connects to everything else. It doesn't take away the sting, doesn't even take away the strangeness of the compromises that God makes with Moses here in the text but the point being God this is God's character that has been revealed and we can trust God's character it doesn't make it easy it doesn't make it always clear but it it does give us a place that we can put our our trust and faith and when we do that God is faithful to the covenant as God has always been faithful to the covenant as we're continuing to discover together
0: yeah we we can certainly not always count on God to do what we want we can always count on God to be God, and th- that much will always be true.
1: It's a good summary for the week. Thank you for being with us, friends. Are glad that you spent some time with us and look forward to seeing you next week. Until Thanks. then, be blessed. Thanks, everybody.